All right, so we're going to be reading John 7, uh, verses 1 through 24. And this is out of the ESV version. In case you have a different version, it might sound a little different. Okay. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Thank you, Megan. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the joy it is to gather, to worship together, to learn together, to encourage one another. Lord, would you help us this morning? we open our hearts and our minds to you, would you speak to us, Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher this morning? Would you build us up that we might leave here with a renewed sense of hope, um, with more of your heart and your vision for our lives, um, for our city, for your world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for that, Megan. Good morning, everyone. My name's Simon. Not met. I'm the lead pastor at Grace City in Portland, just one of several leaders here to serve. Um, chapter 7. We've been working through the book of John for a little while now. Um, if you're first time this morning, welcome. 
Um, I'll do my best to catch you right up, but basically it's, it's a, it's, we've been on a journey, as we say, walking with Jesus. Uh, John, or the Gospel according to John, it's this book recounting the life, the teachings, the death, the resurrection, all of the things um, about Jesus. It's one of four Gospels that have been written. Um, John himself is, of course, an eyewitness, so this is very, very personal. Not only is he retelling the events, but he's, he's doing so in a way that we might be invited on this journey, that we might walk with Jesus, as it were. And, um, and that's not just a sort of quirky church idea. Like, that's, that's a real invitation. Um, before Jesus left this planet, before he ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples that when I leave, I'm going to send another. Um, He's referred to the Holy Spirit elsewhere, the Spirit of Christ, the Helper. Um, It's the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. And although it's a spiritual phenomenon, we too are invited to walk with Jesus, to learn from him, to experience his goodness, um, to be transformed by him. So we've been on this journey for seven chapters now, or six, six chapters or so. Now we're in seven, and we're going to keep going, literally for the rest of the year. Um, typically, churches don't do this because we get bored too easy, because we're like consumers to the core and we need to be entertained. So typically, churches will switch it up. Um, we're not super special, but someone had the idea that, like, let's just go through the whole book. Let's take our time, slow way down, um, and even if we get bored a little along the way, let's, let's imagine ourselves actually walking with Jesus. So that's what we're doing. What we've just read this morning, or what Megan read for us, it's, um, it should feel a little familiar. We're, we're far along in the story now to where we should be begin to be seeing some fairly clear patterns emerging. Um, and in this, this story, what we find is Jesus having another confrontational conversation with uh, the quote-unquote Jews. Of course, Jesus was a Jew, so this is not anti-Semitic. This is the Jews here are um, Jesus' opponents, sort of the religious class of his time who really have serious problems with Jesus and what he's saying. And of course, the controversy is only continuing to increase. Every encounter, every interaction, every debate, every miraculous moment, the controversy is swirling around Jesus. Is he a good man? Is he trouble? Is he demon-possessed? Is he our savior? There's all sorts of different uh, theories, opinions, and debates going on about who this Jesus really is. And so once again, we find ourselves with Jesus as he's engaging in this, it sounds like a relatively confrontational conversation with um, his opponents, as it were. Uh, in this case, the crowd. And um, depending upon where you are personally, sort of how you see yourself, you may relate with with certain characters more than others. And I think that's part of the the beauty of John is that he invites you into the story and we're meant to sort of be like, oh yeah, that's that's me. I'm I'm kind of like that one disciple who's who who seems to always struggles to just 
trust Jesus, to believe that he's actually uh, who he claims to be. Or, or maybe you relate more with like uh, Jesus' opponents. So you're like, I'm really not sure where I stand with Jesus. Um, I'm not really sure with I, where, where I stand with the whole idea of Christianity. It sounds like it may be more trouble than, than good. And, and so we're invited to sort of relate to certain characters at different times. And if you perhaps kind of relate with the crowd, where you're like, okay, I've got questions. I've got questions. Um, you may find yourself, like every week, you come here and you feel like I'm being confronted. It's like my ego's being bludgeoned by this preacher. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was dealing with the crowds. He was confronting them, really questioning their motives, claiming that they want to kill him. He said to his own brothers who were trying to persuade him to, to, to go public, because apparently they didn't believe. They'd probably heard rumors that Jesus had um, allegedly performed some miracles. They hadn't seen it themselves, so they apparently didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be or who some people claimed he was. And so they said, go to Jerusalem, go public, do something that everyone can see. And he says, no, no not yet. My, my time has not yet come. In fact, um, I'm hated in Jerusalem. The world hates me because I, I'm judging their works. I've come to confront uh, their behavior, really their motives. Um, and don't we all just love being uh, confronted when it comes to our motives. This is what Jesus does over and over and over again. Um, yeah, after a while, you're like, oh, Jesus, go easy. This is where we're at, this is where we're at. Jesus continues to confront the crowd and they hate him for it and they wanna kill him. Ironically, just a few chapters ago, um, if you were here, you might recall Jesus, one of his miracles was that he fed a crowd of like 5,000 plus people somehow multiplied bread and fish and fed this massive, massive crowd out in the middle of nowhere. And we were told that they wanted to make him king. They were actually going to make him king by force and Jesus refused because he knew their motives. Um, what he knew exactly, we're not told, but he just knew something about the human heart and he refused. Now, they don't want to make him king, they literally want to kill him. Um, if, they're, if he's not going to play their game, if he's not going to sign off on their agenda, then fine, forget the whole king thing, we're gonna, we're gonna kill you, and eventually they, they will. Spoiler alert. Um, all of this begs the question, what were they so angry about? Why were they so, I mean, eventually, the, the, the controversy will escalate to such a degree that they will literally, an angry, violent mob will form, and they will demand that he's crucified. That's like proper rage. What were they so angry about? Now, at that point, maybe a couple of years from now, the, the other things develop. There's several twists to the plot. It gets political. There's obviously, uh, there's some power dynamics. 
There's certainly some spiritual things happening. Um, but, but where does it start? What in this particular moment are they so angry about? Now, they deny the fact that they want to kill him, but they do. It's, it's pretty obvious from the story. And Jesus himself calls them out on it. You want to kill me? You want to kill me? No, we don't. You're out of your mind. You're demon-possessed. What are they so angry about? Um, you might suggest, one might suggest that uh, they're, they're angry, they're upset, they're offended because Jesus is undermining their sort of like ethical code. There's some, something in there about, you know, well, I, I, I did one miracle. The miracles that he's actually referring to is the one he did quite publicly. It was at another feast in Jerusalem where he uh, healed a man in Bethsaida, Bethesda, sorry, uh, who had been crippled most of his life, but he did it on the Sabbath. And that's the reference there. I healed a man on the Sabbath and you want to kill me. You perform circumcision, male circumcision on the Sabbath, but what, that's okay? I restored a man's entire body on the Sabbath, but now you want to kill me. So there, there seems to be something there. To, they're upset because he's undermining their view of the law. Their, their sort of ethical code. There's a particular religious standard that he's not adhering to, that he's questioning. And you might argue, well, it has something to do with ethical trivia. He's undermining their understanding of how they're meant to honor God and do ethics and how that intersects with their sort of religious world. Um, in which case, you could argue, well, this, this is really more to do with like religious minutia than anything else. And don't we just fight over these things all the time? I mean, 2,000 years later, aren't we still fighting over like religious minutia? Who's doing it right? Who's got it figured out? Who knows best? Even within Christianity, I mean, we've got division off the chart because no one can seem to decide who's got the most sound doctrine. And that's real. That's normal. It's unfortunate. People get really, really angry over this stuff. Like people will leave the state over this stuff. I mean, I saw this happen more than once this past year or so because of stuff to do with like religious conviction. Relationships have been severed. Families have like broken apart. Churches have shut down. Like real pain, real relational trauma has taken place in the wake of like severe debates over religious minutia. This is not an ancient thing, this is like a human thing. It could have something to do with that. He references um, circumcision. He says in verse 22, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. He's calling them out on their hypocrisy. Um, do you guys get the reference? What, what is circumcision, Sabbath, the law, Moses, 
the fathers have to do with this, this moment. Well, we've got to go back to uh, the beginning of the story. It's, it's essentially uh, the Jews' origin story. Genesis 12, way back to the beginning, we're introduced to a man named Abram. Later on, he, he, he's renamed as Abraham. Um, it's a bizarre, wonderful, rather obscure story about just some guy who all of a sudden we're introduced to 12 chapters into the Bible and we're told that God revealed himself to him and says, I'm gonna use you. If you'll go, if you'll trust me, I'm gonna use you to create a family that's so big it's going to bless the world. Okay. So Abraham apparently believes him. Could you imagine, how did it go down? Did he hear a voice in the desert? Was he meditating? Was he, did he hallucinate? Like what, how did it happen? It happened. So Abraham heard the voice of God. God said, I'm gonna use you to create offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and through your family, I'm gonna bless the world. Bless is the opposite of curse. And so Abraham, he believes him. He believes him. He takes off. He goes without knowing exactly where he's going to end up or how it's all going to go down, but he trusts God. In, uh, so that's Genesis 12. In Genesis 16, about a decade goes by, 11 years exactly. Abraham, 75, when he encounters God in this bizarre way and, and receives this promise, 11 years later is 86. Nothing's happened. No offspring, no child. He's, he was 75 years old at the time. Now he's 86. His wife's just a little bit younger than him. Do the math. It's, it's biology. He's probably beginning to wonder himself, like, how is this going to go down for real? So Abraham... Uh, the ancient times, in that time they, they had servants and, and you know, and they would have had a big, um, like an entourage. People who were working for the family and his own wife, Sarai, had like a maid servant named Hagar. Abraham had the idea, well, if, since it's not working with my wife, okay, one of us has obviously got some biology problems, let's see if we can get pregnant with Hagar. You could say, Abraham, after a decade plus of waiting on God, decides to take matters into his own hands. He grasps for control. This is classic. This is what we do. This is what we do. Um, So they have a son. They have a son. Abraham assists God, expedites the process a little bit, and they have a son named Ishmael. 13 years later, Ishmael is now coming of age. God meets Abraham in the desert once again. He says, you know what? Um, the promise I made you, it still stands. Only your little side plan of using your wife's maidservant to, to get an offspring, that, 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 was not, that was not part of my plan. That was you attempting to sort of control the situation and quote unquote assist me. I didn't ask your help. What I asked you to do is simply trust me. And so you know what God does? Okay, so at this point in time, Abraham's 99 years old. 
Okay, Ishmael's 13, Abraham's now 99, and God says, my promise still stands. I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you an offspring through your family, which is going to be massive. I'm going to bless the world, but you've got to trust me. So here's what I want you to do. Take the tip of your penis and cut it off. Trust me. Trust me. Your super old wife is going to have a child, and through your family, I'm going to bless the world. This is the Bible. I'm just saying, this is the story. This is how it went down. That's kind of extreme. That's kind of extreme. Trust me. I need you to trust the only way this is gonna work out, not just in your generation, I'm talking about like generations to come, eternity to come. If I'm gonna bless the world on a scale that matches my vision in a way that will undo the curse, you've got to trust me, little human. If you attempt to grasp for control, manipulate the situation and assist God, it's, it's not gonna work out, it never ever has. Abraham, trust me. And so enter circumcision. Circumcision becomes like this identity marker. It's, it's, it's a very extreme kind of visible way that if anyone were to look on, they would know that's a man who trusts God. Oh my God, he trusts God. That's, that's, that's extreme. And so circumcision, and it's not just Abraham, it's all of his sons, it's all of his male offspring, and it becomes like an identity marker, okay? If you're circumcised, then you're in, these are my notes, if you're circumcised, then you're in the family of God. You're in the family that trusts God. I might need those. Four hundred years later, they have a family. As it turns out, Abraham and his wife Sarah had a boy named Isaac. We named our boy Isaac. Isaac has a son, a couple of sons actually. They have sons, daughters. The family begins to grow. It's a miracle that they even survived out in that desert. But God was faithful. God blessed them, and they grew and they grew and they grew. Generations would go by and they'd continue to grow 400 years later. That whole big family, like the beginning of a, of a small, not even a nation at that point, just like a really, like a town, like a really small town. Um, they experience famine and they have to go to Egypt to survive the famine. They have, they have storehouses there and it's just this, this incredible story of Joseph and, and God being so unfathomably faithful to keep his promise. Um, they end up becoming slaves in Egypt and they go through all this stuff and then Moses comes along. Moses is another man that God meets out in the desert and uses Moses to then introduce the law. Circumcision, that identity marker, that extreme statement that meant I trust God with my future and my family and, and eternity became codified. And what started out as an expression of just raw trust in God became this sort of like codified identity marker. And if you were circumcised, then that means you were in 
the family of God, but if you weren't, then you weren't. And it may or may not have had anything to do with a person's actual heart, whether or not they did or didn't actually trust God. Just became this ritual, this tradition, this thing that that God's people did, but the hearts hmm, may not have actually been engaged in the process. This is what Jesus is talking about. You circumcise a man on the Sabbath, but then you go after me when I restore a whole man's body on the Sabbath. You, you have lost the plot. You've forgotten what this was all about. You've forgotten what the identity marker was actually meant to mean in the first place. That is something to do with the heart. Not just the ritual you go through, not just the motions, not just the appearances you put on, which is the word he used in the end of this section. But an actual engagement of the heart. Jesus is going after the heart. Now, a little side thought. This is where it gets tricky. Because if we keep reading the story, in fact, if we keep reading like the big story, we get into the other parts of the New Testament, we find out there's actually nothing trivial about ethics. In fact, the Bible's pretty explicit when it comes to like sexual ethics, uh, when it comes to like economic ethics, when it comes to how we actually love each other. This isn't just like, oh, you follow your heart, whatever feels right. Like, no, the Bible's super explicit. This is what it looks like to love God and to love your neighbor from the heart. What Jesus is doing is beginning to, to, to reorder the process. Instead of just doing the religious things without any regard for what's actually happening in your heart, he says, no, no, no. Before you get too caught up in identity markers and ethical trivia and religious minutia, let's deal with the heart. Amen or oh my. That's the big hurt right there. Jesus goes for the heart. And what's especially painful about this process is that he's talking to people who actually do the religious stuff really, really well when it comes to like ethics, as it were. I mean, they've got it on lock. They know exactly what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and to say they, they've mastered the appearances of godliness. But Jesus is saying, for what? What's going on in your heart? Why are you doing this? I would argue that where humans have always gone wrong is when we begin to make, um, we take our, our works, Jesus said that I, I have accused them, um, what does he say? They hate me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Where we go wrong is when we take our works and we begin to form identity markers out of the things we do or don't do, forgetting that actually God sees the heart. We go tribal. 
And this is not just like a Christian thing, it's not even just a religious thing, this is like a human thing. We take some sort of thing, some like, uh, like code of ethics, and then we stick a sign in our front yard as our identity marker and say, this is who I am. Are you in or are you out? Are you for me or against me? Whose side are you on? And God sees right through it into our hearts. Why is this so important to you? Why does it make you so angry that maybe I don't agree with you? Why? Because it's an affront to the identity that you've created around some sort of an ethical code. Don't you mess with my identity. How dare you? I will murder you in my heart. And so Jesus aims for the heart. He says, I absolutely will mess with your identity. It's what I've come here for. That's the big hurt. But it's also the better hope. You know, my grandma used to... um, God rest her soul. She used to say this thing all the time. If, um, I remember one specific moment. There was, um, there was a guy that used to, I think, I think he like did her lawn or something. And um, he ended up getting arrested because he like broke into one of the houses next door. And it was, it was a bad situation. And she's like, well, you know, he was such a sweet man and God knows his heart. And she would always say that about people. It was, it was very kind, it was very merciful, but then I'd always think to myself, why doesn't that apply to my granddad? She was so mean to my granddad. <laughs> and now that for sure there was a backstory to that. <laughs> but she would say this, this thing that sounded really sweet, but I remember thinking to myself like, yeah, God does see our hearts. And on one hand, it's very like comforting and also terrifying. Like God actually sees the motives of my heart. He can see the motives that I've actually managed to, to somehow justify and bury and cover up and tweak so many different ways that I'm not even aware of these motives anymore. And God sees my heart. And it would seem Jesus isn't really at all interested in just modifying my behavior. He doesn't really care so much that I've got the identity marker on. Great, you do all the things. You say all the right words. And you, you have all the right behavior. But what exactly is going on in your heart? And do those things just, have you created an identity that's akin to idolatry out of these things in this identity marker? Or does your heart truly belong to me? because I want to get in there. I want to give you a new identity. I want to fill that heart with the love of my Father. And that will radically affect your motives in a way that you, you, you cannot even begin to imagine. Let's see, anything else on there that needs to be said? Nope, that's pretty much it. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. In, in Romans 2.29, he says, circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit of God. It's an inward phenomenon. In Romans uh, chapter six, he writes, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. And in Romans seven, he says that having died to that which held us captive, we serve in the new way of the Spirit 
and not in the old way of the written code. When Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, um, we're no longer just adhering to written codes. We're no longer just doing ethics. We now have a heart that's been wholly surrendered to our creator. We're given a new identity. We actually become the blessed sons and daughters of God. Motive is everything. We can just do the right things and keep up appearances. What has that ever done for anyone? Where where has that ever gotten us? Ethics matter because we don't just get to make up um, God's uh, purpose, his standard for the creature. Why he gave me a body. How I'm meant to worship him with all that I've been entrusted with. These things matter. But Jesus is after the heart. So that these things that we do, these quote unquote identity markers that we wear, are actual expressions of a heart that's overflowing with the love of God. Circumcision um, was an external marker. You know what the new marker of the Christian is? Don't say baptism. It's not baptism. If you've never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, you need to get baptized because Jesus commanded us to. It's like the, uh, it's like the initiation rite into the family. But even baptism is just an external uh, action the true identity marker of the son or daughter in the family of God, it's circumcision of the heart. It's being filled with the spirit of God. It adjusts our very motivations uh, for everything. God teaches us to love the way we've been loved. Our love starts to look much more like sacrificial love, cruciform love, cross-like love love. We lay our lives down for the people around us. Instead of arguing about who's right or wrong, we demonstrate the love of God. We embody the spirit of God as the hands and feet of Jesus in his body in a way that looks like the way he's loved us. And it is a great joy. It is a great joy. I am set free from the weight of keeping up appearances And I get to participate in loving people the way I have been loved. I become a worshiper and I worship in spirit and in truth. I get to obey Jesus and the way he has commanded me to live my life, steward my body, spend my money, love my neighbors in a way that's not just me fulfilling a religious obligation, but an overflow of love. Becomes an act of worship. It's freedom, it's joy. Jesus is after our hearts. Can we stand together please? I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna hand off to our worship team
Father, thank you so much. Lord, for this epic story, your story that you've invited us into, Lord, that we do get to walk with you, not through the deserts of Judea, but Lord, in, in, in a very real way nonetheless. Lord Jesus, would you help us to, to grow along the way as you confront us it's in, in only a way that you can, with so much um, boldness, so much gentleness, so much grace. Lord, would you help us to take the next step? Would you help us to surrender uh, parts of our hearts um, that we've not yet given to you? Would you help us to be honest about the ways that we simply have settled for religious pretense, um, appearances, as opposed to just radical surrender. Surrender in ways that really don't make sense. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.